You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 14, Psalm chapter 14, but we're also going to be in Psalm chapter 53 as well, and I'll explain to you in a minute why, if you're not already aware, but um, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 is where we're going to be today. I've told you before that my rhyme and reason for the Psalms that we do each week are usually determined by the week that I've had, and so there's usually something that's occurred that kind of prompts me in a specific direction. And so today's psalm really flows from the experience that I had this week, being able to go to the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter up in Kentucky. I don't know how many of you have had a chance to go. Raise your hand if you've been there before. Okay, so a good amount, but not everybody. Um, man, what an incredible experience to be able to go and and see so much of the book of Genesis put on display in such an excellent way. I mean, the graphics and the, the organization of the content is just top-notch. Um, but, but, you know, you also kind of feel like you're in a, a theme park-type mindset, you know, coming in, you're, you're buying tickets, and you're walking the park, and having just come off a Disney World trip, like it kind of felt kind of being at an amusement park, too. What was so encouraging, though, is that everywhere you turn, everybody you're encountering is sharing a similar worldview as you. So every part of the presentation is shaped through a consistent biblical worldview that I share with the individuals there. And so that was super encouraging. I mean, every presentation we're seeing has the gospel intertwined into it. There's gospel presentations taking place all day long with it. Uh, Even down to when we were eating lunch and and I was going to get something to drink, one of the drink machines was broken and there was a sign on it that said, uh, due to the fallenness of our world, our drink machine is broken, uh, but we're working to correct it. Um, and, and so it even like put me in the right mindset of, hey, I can't really complain about this broken drink machine because it is a result of a fallen world and, and, and they can't control that, right? Um, just a really encouraging experience to be able to go and, and see and, and read and, and, and learn and experience um, so much of what the book of Genesis talks about. And so I was drawn to um, Psalm chapter 14 in light of what we talked about last week, because last week we talked about, as Marcus was sharing, the, the omni-attributes of God and how we should desire a God who is those things, right? But I told you from the text we see there, there's a group of people that responds to a God who knows everything, who is everywhere, who can do anything, responds to that type of God with hatred, right? Doesn't want an intrusive God who knows everything going on in their life because then that means there's accountability to that God. Um, doesn't want a God to go with them everywhere because, again, there's accountability that comes with that. And so there's a resistance to the God of Scripture. Um, and we see that in Psalm chapter 14 as the fool is described as one who, who does not yield to the God of the, of the Bible. And so I want us to look at Psalm 14 today. And again, we're going to look at Psalm 53 as well because they are almost identical. Um, there's a couple of variations in these two Psalms, but for the most part, they are identical. I spent some time reading various commentaries as to the significance of the differences and why both of these are contained in Scripture and why they are separated since they are so similar. Um, There wasn't a whole lot of uh, what I felt like convincing evidence as to the why behind this. Um, Maybe the the one that made the most sense to me was that one was written earlier than the other, and uh, as we see sometimes, songs that we've sung for years get kind of an update or a, a change 
based on a new writer kind of getting a hold to it. Maybe that's what took place with Psalm 53, that, that there is an update, and we'll see the update, and it may be an update based on an immediate experience that took place in the lives of God's people, that they tweaked the psalm, and, and under the divine inspiration of God, uh, it was included in the psaltery as well. So, uh, But they are pretty identical, but we're going to take the time to read both just so you can see the similarities and differences, and then I'm going to teach to you kind of bouncing between both, okay? So Psalm chapter 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. They would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Now let's look at Psalm 53, and I want you to see if you can identify the differences or the major differences. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Anybody pick up on major differences between those two psalms? What would those be? Okay, no knowledge working evil. There's, there's a difference in the, the names of God used there. You have the more uh, intimate covenantal name of God used in the first one, Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh being used. In 53, you have Elohim, uh, which is typically translated as God being used. So a difference in, in names being used. The, the big difference is going to be um, in verses 5 and 6 and 7, uh, where in chapter 14, I think you see more of a emphasis being placed on encouraging the believer, um, where you have God being seen as a, uh, a place of refuge, um, the place of uh, where the poor can run to. Whereas in chapter 53, you see more of an emphasis, I think, on uh, what unbelievers need to be warned about, that there is a God who scatters the bones of him who encamps against God's people, that he puts them to open shame, that God rejects them. So I think you see a little bit of an encouragement towards believers being the emphasis in chapter 14. And in chapter 53, more of a warning to unbelievers. Now, the warning towards unbelievers is encouraging to the believers because it shows ultimate victory from God over the unbeliever. Um, but I think that the messaging is probably meant to kind of emphasize towards those two people groups. Encouragement to the believer in chapter 14, warning towards the unbeliever in chapter 53. Now, I also want to read to you Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Because if we're not careful, and I'll be honest, like multiple commentators pointed out this, and I, before yesterday, probably wasn't careful about this. If we're not careful, we will read the idea of the fool 
saying that there is no God and think that that's other people, right? That will automatically think, oh yeah, that applies to other people who don't believe in God. But don't lose sight of the fact that Paul uses the wordage of either 14 or 53, not sure exactly which one he's quoting from, um, but he uses that in reference to all of mankind, right? Romans 1, 2, and 3, he is building a case to show that we all need Jesus, that we are all dead in our sin, and that we are all incapable of being good. And so Paul quotes from this passage in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Right? This is, this is really an indictment against all of us. At some point in our life, we all played the fool. We all played the fool. We all were resistant to God. We all believed that God did not exist or we did not want him to exist and therefore lived contrary to his desires and plans for us. From the, from the day we were born, born into sin, we were enemies of God. So this passage, if we're not careful, we'll dismiss it and just think that it only applies to the unbeliever and not see that we too see our history contained in this chapter at the beginning, this idea of being a fool. Romans chapter 1 also describes to us this level of foolishness, the rejection of what we know about God. Verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to him to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, and therefore God gave them up. God gave them over to this rejection, right? So Romans 1 and 3 point back to Psalm 14 and 53. The idea of the fool, the individual who is foolish in his heart, rejects the things of God and goes a different route for living their life. And until Christ intervened in our life, we were in that classification of fool. Whether you got saved at the age of four or five or whether it was later in life, you at one point were in the classification of fool. You lived as if there was no God. And then God intervened and changed your life to open your eyes to his existence. These two, ver- or these two chapters help us to see what's wrong with the world. We're what's wrong with the world. These verses help us to understand why the world is the way that it is and what needs to happen to fix it. It helps us to see that doctrine of original sin that it's Adam's sin and the ripple effects of it that affects all of humanity. All of humanity is ruined by sin. We've all rebelled against God, and we're all in need of salvation. Because we reject God, we now set ourselves against God and his people through our sin. That's kind of the the implications of the rejection of God at the beginning of the chapter. You begin to read through this, and you see an individual who is set against God with the actions that they involve themselves in, set against God in the ways that they are actively antagonistic towards his people as well. Because we reject God, he gives us over to the worst ways of thinking and the worst ways of acting. Essentially, the floodgates for sin are open. That's why when you continue to read through Romans chapter 1, you see after God gives them up to this rejection, I mean, 
everything's at play then at that point. All kinds of sins are being introduced because man is being able to live outside of the divine authority that he's to submit to. And so man and woman begin to do all kinds of uh, heinous type of things, get involved in all kinds of activities that, that God's word would reject, but they are drawn to those things. They desire those things because they've rejected the divine in their life. What's great about both these chapters is they point towards salvation at the end. Both of these chapters, the last verse points to what can fix all of the problems that are described in the chapter. It's salvation for Israel coming out of Zion. These, these uh, whispers of the Messiah who is to come and fix all of it for us, right? When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, when God's people begin to rejoice and be glad because salvation comes. Our summary sentence for today. Fools reject God and oppress his people, but God rejects fools and restores his people. Meaning if we choose to trust God, we have nothing to fear, but if we choose to ignore God, we have everything to fear. Fools reject God and oppress his people, but God rejects fools and restores his people. Meaning if we choose to trust God, we have nothing to fear, but if we choose to ignore God, we have everything to fear. For our kids, only a fool would think God doesn't exist. Obviously, I'm speaking to adults today, but I want our youth to really pay attention today because as as I was going through the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, I couldn't help but think about our youth and how important it is for you to understand the truths that we're going to talk about today because these truths are going to come under attack as you come out from underneath your parents' wings, right? The truths of God's existence and the implications of his existence are going to be called into question the moment you step out and you begin to choose now for yourself, how you will live out your faith, right? Will you involve yourself in a local church? Will you continue to yield yourself to God's word? Or has that only been a thing in place because your parents had it in place for you? Will that remain intact? Are you giving yourself to the king who is raised from the dead? Or do you simply come to church and do the Christian thing because mom and dad expect you to? And they feel omni in your life too. You feel like they're always with you. They always know what's going on. And so you better shape up and do what they say. But as soon as you're out, will you choose to do things differently? And those who choose to go off to a secular school, these things are going to come into question immediately for you. As your professors begin to challenge your understanding of creationism. As your professors begin to challenge your understanding of the resurrection. And when those things are called into question, you will undoubtedly doubt whether the second coming is really going to happen, right? So I want our youth to really dial in and try to listen to me today because while I want you to listen every week, I certainly want you to get the truth today because I think they have huge implications for you as you hold to your faith down the road. Point number one today is to stop being a fool. To stop being a fool, that idea of rejection, because again, all of us fit into the fool category at some point. Some of us have already stopped being a fool, right? Some of us need to stop. Some of us have been rescued from this darkness that's described here. This idea of of, of rejecting God and, and, and pursuing abominable deeds. Some of us have been rescued from that. But even in that rescue, some of us are drawn back to that type of lifestyle from time to time where we want to live as though God does not exist. We need to stop being a fool as the scriptures describe here. One who says in his heart, there is no God. Number one here, atheism flows from a desire to live free from divine authority. Atheism flows from a desire to live free from divine authority. 
Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's the fool who despises what we can learn from God, from his word. Let me start by asking this question. Let me specifically ask our youth this question, okay? Do I want God to exist? Do I want God to exist? Right? As, I, as I'm walking through the Creation Museum, everything's kind of pointing to these arguments for God's existence, right? Like how we know God exists. And what they do is a great job of showing what like the naturalist or the evolutionist believes about some of the same evidence and some of the same facts, right? And so as you're walking through it, you're seeing all this evidence for the existence of God and how the, crea- or how the humanist or the naturalist or the evolutionist would interpret some of the same evidence, right? And, and Tyson was telling me, one of our boys, because um, we were with the same group of guys, he said one of the guys kind of came through the whole thing and, and mentioned to him, he said, I don't see how you could not believe after going through something like that, right? Um, but for the most part, it's not that the fool lacks knowledge or evidence, Right? It's, it's really a desire of the heart. It's a desire to reject that because I don't want it, right? Now, we could list advantages out the wazoo for God existing, the God that we believe Scripture presents. What are the advantages of that God existing? Well, they're, they're, they're innumerable, right? They're innumerable, the advantages that we see from God existing. The, the disadvantages of him not existing are astronomical, Right? I mean, I mean, Paul tells us we are to be pitied if, if Christ is not raised from the dead, right? If there is no hope beyond this life. But I think that the, 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 the sinful part of us sees advantages to, to God not existing, right? Because if God doesn't exist, then I don't have to answer to him. And there's, there's a drawing away from him by the enemy that makes it desirable to think about him not existing, and that the advantages of him not existing outweigh the advantages of, uh, advantages of him existing. I read an article, um, and, and I'd encourage you to read it because maybe you can help me see what I'm missing here. The, the, the title of the article was The Blessings of Atheism. The Blessings of Atheism. I think it was written in 2013 in the New York Times, right? And so I'm reading it thinking like, wow, this should be really insightful. Like, what are the, because I can't come up with any. Right? I can't come up with any, like, what are the advantages of God not existing besides the fact that maybe you feel freedom to live however you want to live, like outside of divine authority? So I'm reading it, and par for the course, the individual used to be a person of faith, but in their early childhood, one of their friends got polio and ended up in an iron lung, and they could never reconcile God's goodness How could a good God let my friend end up in an iron lung, right? So disappointment with God leads them to leave the faith, right? And so she, this, this article, this author begins to describe the fact that, you know, what a disadvantage for a Christian to have to go to a funeral and try to explain how a good God would let death happen. She said the atheist doesn't have to do that. The blessing of atheism is that I can go to a funeral and comfort my friend and say, hey, there is no reason for this. Your child is just dead, but there's peaceful rest in that now. And that was, that was like all the article really said. And I stepped away thinking like, like that's the blessing? The blessing that you don't have to reconcile a, a, a difficult deal with, with a good God and death existing, right? And we know from our worldview that 
the reason death exists is because man introduced sin and death into the world, right? But that the blessing of atheism is that I don't have to explain a God who I don't understand to you because there is no God and, and there is no purpose in life and there is no meaning behind death and there is nothing after death. Like that was the big advantage for her. God doesn't exist and, and that just answers all of our questions and it doesn't, right? That's not an advantage at all. Do we want God to exist? The atheist and the believer have access to the same evidence and the same knowledge. The difference is in interpretation and application. The naturalist and the creationist account for everything they see in different ways, in different orders, and with different reasonings, right? For the, for the evolutionist or the, the naturalist, they believe that death and, and wrongdoing and brokenness existed before human beings ever showed up on the scene, Right? Like, like as, as, as everything is kind of progressing to the evolution of man, there's death and brokenness leading up to man's introduction to this earth. Christianity knows it's man being introduced to this earth that brought the brokenness, right? It was our willful rebellion against God that brought the brokenness. So they see everything differently. They interpret everything differently. The same evidence, just a different application of it. An atheist will willfully overlook the facts. Second Peter 3 uh, chapter 3 talks about how uh, mankind overlooks the, the aspect of the ark and the flood and the judgment of God and how it points us to a greater judgment coming, right? What's interesting to me is that in Second Peter 3, um, Peter talks about how the earth is set up to be destroyed by fire, right? That this coming fire judgment is going to be what, what brings an end to our current earth. And that Jesus is coming with that judgment. Well, well, if you just watch the secular news, you'll find that, that they're kind of preaching a similar message, right? That, that if we're not careful, uh, global warming and the climate change and, and the way that our earth is deteriorating, like it'll bring an end to humanity. And so the solution is to what? To fix our abuse of the environment, right? That, that, that how we're treating the environment is what's wrong, and yet there is no acknowledgement that it's how we are acting towards God that is what is wrong, right? The solution is, let's try, let's try to slow down the process uh, of fire coming on this earth, whereas Second Peter 3 would tell us, we got to get right with God because it's coming. It's coming regardless of how we handle the climate. The fool says in his heart there is no God because he doesn't want to live under divine authority, Think about what's happening in the Old Testament, right? You go off to a secular school and, and you sit under a secular professor and you're going to hear creationism being denied. You're going to hear reasons that the ark and the flood are illo- illogical, right? The fool denies creationism to avoid submitting to an authority. He denies the ark and the flood to avoid his sin being addressed, like that's, that's why you deny creationism. Because if creationism is real, if a God creates me, then he defines me. He defines my purpose, and I have to submit to him. The fool denies the ark and the flood, because if the ark and the flood are real, then that means God intervenes on this earth and judges sin, which means he might would do it again. Here's what's really cool about the ark encounter. And if you only went to one, you go to both, okay? So you, you shouldn't just go to one. You need to go to both of these, um, What's really cool about the Ark Encounter is that it shows how what we have read in Scripture can be seen logically through the construction of the Ark. To see how they, they made, uh, you know, they, they basically developed it in such a way where all the animals could fit, 
how all the animals could be caged, how all the animals could eat, how all of them could be taken care of. I mean, it's, it's super in-depth to show that, hey, this doesn't need to be dismissed as a fairy tale, right? Like, the, like the, the fool would have you think that this is impossible. You can't have all the animals on an ark. The ark encounter does, goes to great lengths to show how you absolutely can, right? Why does the fool deny the ark? Why does the fool deny creationism? Because he doesn't want to submit to a divine authority. He doesn't want his judgment or doesn't want his sin to be judged. Well, in the New Testament, you have the same thing, right? The resurrection comes under fire. The resurrection is doubted. Why? Because if Jesus is back from the dead, then he defines my purpose, and I have to submit to him, right? Because he's offering a recreation. He's offering me to become a new creature, right? So if he is alive, he is the king, and I need to submit to him. And I also find that the, the fool denies the second coming. Why? Because the fool doesn't want the sin to be judged again, right? It's the same idea. Creation, ark, deny it. Why? Because I don't want to submit to God and I don't want my sin judged. Resurrection, second coming, deny it. Why? Because I don't want to submit to him and I don't want my sin judged. And for our youth, you need to understand how important those events are to your faith. Believing that God created everything, right? Believing that God judged everything. Why? Because it points us to the New Testament that God recreates everything that comes to him. We come to Jesus in faith, he makes us new creatures. We submit to our risen king. Why? Because he's coming again. He's coming again. Just like in the days of Noah, he is coming again to judge our sin. We need to get right with him. We need to get right with him. The fool reasons in his heart. He determines what he thinks to be real and important, and he suppresses the evidence, and he chooses what appeals to him. And so without God and his word at play anymore, he's now free to to, to go any direction that he wants to go. He can, he can choose whatever he wants to choose because there are no standards, there are no directions that he has to follow. The standard now becomes doing what is best for self, which typically brings trouble on everyone else. You see here in Psalm 14, once you say there is no God, you are corrupt and you do abominable deeds and you don't do good, right? That corrupt character leads to abominable deeds. The inner is affected. Uh, it, the inner affects your outer actions. Number two, atheism is part of everyone's story and remains a temptation, right? Again, let us not think that this only applies to other people. We were in this category. We all have atheism in our past as we were born separated from God as his enemies. We all played the fool at some point. But here's the thing. You can be sitting here today saying, but I'm not anymore, right? Obviously, I believe God exists and I've submitted to him. But even after salvation, the temptation is to resort back to this type of foolishness. And the temptation grows when we see the wicked prospering. Look what Job says in Job 21. This is where we wrestle with our faith when the Christian life is failing to live up to these unhealthy expectations that we might have for it. Job says in 21 verse 13, they spend their days in prosperity, talking about the wicked, and in peace they go down to Sheol. That's what the Blessings of Atheism article would tell you. Verse 14, they say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him, and what profit do we get if we pray to him? What's the advantage of God existing, the wicked says, because we're prospering just fine without him. And youth, if you're not careful, because whether you go to Trinity, whether you go to public school, or whether you're homeschool, you're going to be around kids at some point who don't follow Jesus, who seem to get all the breaks, who seem to always make the sports teams, who always have a date to prom, 
who always get the college acceptances, who always seem to get promoted at work, who always seem to get away with things when the teacher's not around. And you're going to look at that and you're going to say, what advantage is there? Because I'm praying to a God and I'm following a God and that guy right there is not, or that girl right there is not. And they seem to be prospering. Why should I keep doing this? Right? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Job says, the fool looks around and says, why would I even want to follow a God? I'm prospering just fine without him. Will we abandon the faith because the Christian life fails to deliver on promises made about the life to come? And that's where, youth, you've got to see this. Me, your parents, we are not promising you anything God's word does not promise you anything for this life when it comes to prosperity or things going your way every time that you want it to. There is not a promise like that. The promise is that God always works good for you, but you may not always understand and interpret that goodness correctly. Right? The, the bulk of the promises in Scripture are tied to the life to come, a life that we've never seen before. Right? We are banking on something being far greater than our greatest experiences here. When your desires tempt you to want God not to exist, the evidence of his existence will easily twist to make you think he doesn't. That's a me quote right there for you. When your desires tempt you to want God not to exist, right? So you start to have these sinful desires, these things that you want to do, and you know that God's word says you can't do that. The divine authority says no to those things. Why? Because they're not good for you. But in that moment, you think that they are, right? And so when your desires tempt you to want God not to exist, I'm going to tell you, that's when the evidence of his existence will easily twist. Your secular professor will easily be able to convince you that he doesn't exist. Why? Because you've opened the door because you don't want him to exist at this point, right? Because if he doesn't exist, then I am free to do this thing. I am free to pursue this thing. And when you've opened that door, it'll become very easy for the evidence to twist to say, have you ever looked at the evidence for the flood? Because there isn't really any, right? And you'll be like, wow, how have I never seen that? Have you ever thought about how all the animals will fit on an ark? Like, that's impossible. And you'll look at that and you'll say, yeah, that is impossible. Right? The moment that your desires start to tempt you to not want God to exist, that's when the evidence of his existence can easily twist to make you think that he doesn't. Look how God looks down in this passage in response to what's happening. Back in Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. I don't know if you read that and think about other incidences when he does this, but he does something similar in Genesis chapter 6. He looks down upon man and sees the same word for corrupt used here in Genesis 14, or Psalm 14. It's the same word for corruption in Genesis 6, and the flood ensues, right? So he looks down on man, sees all this wickedness, all this corruption, he does a similar thing in Genesis 11 when he looks down upon Babel and sees man in defiance against him, and he brings judgment there too, right? Not in the form of killing anyone, but he, he diverts their, their abilities to perform by changing everybody's language. He does something similar in Genesis 18 when he goes looking down into Sodom before he brings judgment there. Now, we talked last week about how God already knows everything and he is already everywhere. Why, why does the scriptures present it this way as though God has to go and evaluate? Well, I think for, it's meant for us. 
because I think it further validates what he's doing because we see him exercising his, his infinite knowledge. Like he is, he is fully aware of what's happening here, right? He's fully aware of what's happening here. He sees the wickedness. He sees the need to respond to it. I think that, that God even presents these other options outside of Jesus to help us see that Jesus is the only solution, right? Hey, everything is wicked and evil, right? If, I f- if, 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 if we flood the earth, like this is, this is coming from man's perspective. If, 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 if God were to just start over with, with just a new family, things would probably get fixed, right? God shows us that that doesn't fix anything, right? Starts over with Noah and his family, and boom, we're right back into sin pretty quickly, right? What is that, what is that for? What does that do? Why, why is that needed? I think it just shows us all the more when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's the only possible answer, right? He brings David on the scene, this great king. He brings Moses on the scene, this great prophet, right? And these guys fail, right? They're, 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 they're hitting rocks instead of speaking to rocks, right? They're sleeping with women that aren't their, their wives, right? Like the best king, the best prophet, starting over with one individual doesn't fix anything, just brings more sin. Why? Because we're all fools at some point in our life. We all live like God doesn't exist. It's only until the perfect God-man shows up, Jesus, who fixes it all. Stop being a fool. Stop rejecting him. Whether you're just outright rejecting him or living like he doesn't exist, stop being a fool. Number two, don't wait to fear God. Don't wait to fear God. Mankind is corrupt. There is no goodness. Verse 4 of chapter 14, have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord, there they are in great terror. Let's look what Psalm 53 says about it. There's a miscalculation that happens here. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. Now, what's important here is that as you continue to read, but already we've seen in these two verses, there's a reference to my people. There's also later a reference to a generation of the righteous. Now, what that implies is that rescue and transformation is possible, right? While we all fit into this category, as Romans 3 tells us, we're all undone in our, in our evilness. We are all found to be not good. There must be a way of rescue because there are a group of people that are described as his people, as the generation of the righteous. And we know that comes from salvation in Christ. And so we see now a separation of the groups. The, the evil continue in their evilness, but there's a group of people who come out of that evilness that are drawn to God and are classified as his people. God forms this people from those who have rejected him. But here's the warnings to us. One, we must be careful about living life without God. We must be careful about living life without God. Notice how this wickedness is described. The wickedness is described as common as eating bread right? Their evilness, their wickedness. It's classified as though it's being done like the eating of bread. Now, eating of bread, that is as normal and as daily and as common as you can get, right? We all eat meals every day. And so he says their wickedness, their wickedness against others, it's as common as bread eating. It also tells us that there is no desire to include communication with God as normal life, right? They don't call upon God, they have no need to consult him, no need to follow him, and no need to seek help from him. Now, here's another question that I ask you, and I'd ask our youth the same question. What's worse, 
saying there is no God or saying I don't need that God? Let me ask this question. Is atheism in your life confirmed or denied based on your time in God's word and your prayer to him? Because this seems to be an indication as to whether you believe there is a God or not. Do you include him in your life? Not because mom and dad tell you to. Not because mom and dad bring you to church. Not because mom and dad sit you down and have devotions with you. Those of you that have grown and have matured and professed faith in Christ, do you really show your belief in the existence of God based on your inclusion of him in your life? Do you pray to him? Do you go to his word for consultation about how to live for him? That's evidence of believing that he really exists when you are now drawn to following him by including him in your life. These people don't call upon him. He's absent from their life. They force him out. They push him out. I don't know what's worse. There is no God or I don't need that God. To know all the evidence that he exists and to say, I think I can do this without him. I think I can eat and go about my business without him. Number two, we must be careful about living life against God as well. Not just without him, but against him. And that's what's described here in both these chapters. It's people who not only eat their bread and don't call upon God, but they eat God's people like they eat bread. The other normal part of life for the atheist is that he's antagonistic towards towards God's people. He views God's people as lesser enemies. Now, this is a fulfillment of what Genesis 3 talks about, right? You go back to Genesis 3, and as God's handing out punishment and kind of describing what world looks like now that you've sinned, he says there's going to be enmity. There's going to be division between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, right? There's going to be God's people and everybody else. So, so God says there's going to be this division, and we see this practically playing out here, where you have God's people, and they're being eaten, abused, attacked by those who are not God's people. Why? Well, the fools come after God's people because they stand for what they're trying to rid themselves of, right? God's people are attacked by those who aren't God's people because we stand for everything that they're trying to get rid of, right? Why do we come under attack when we stand up against sin and practices that are inconsistent with God's word? Because the the, the atheist says we don't want to give an accountability for what we are doing, Therefore, we must attack you because your message contradicts how we want to live. Now, the Exodus story serves as a warning for what happens to those who oppress God's people, right? You have the Egyptians who oppress God's people, and they themselves are flooded for it, right? It's a warning to us. And I would warn our youth, too, like, as you're growing and maturing in your faith, and there's times where you're tempted to to fall into the cool crowd and, and to do things maybe not quite in line with God's word, but maybe not so far away. But, but then maybe you start to see other people who are staying committed. And there's this conviction that sometimes will set into where you now become critical of God's people because you see people doing what you should be doing, but you don't want to, but you can't, you can't ignore the, the conviction that you feel. And so it's, it's not uncommon for, for people who profess Christ to make fun of other people who profess Christ because of the way they're choosing to live. Man, I hope our youth will be broken if that's ever been a part of your life, that you would see, man, let me see the individual who is being faithful and let me be drawn to live that way. Let me be drawn to friendship with that individual. Let me not be one who criticizes and minimizes the standards and the choices and decisions that they're making. 
He says they eat God's people like they eat bread. They attack them. Don't wait to fear God because look what happens here. In verse 5 of chapter 53, he says they are in great terror now. Where there, where there was no terror. There used to not be any terror, and now there is terror. Why? Because God does come to judge. He does come to bring judgment upon sin. How can we escape that judgment? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us. It tells us how to overcome our own foolishness with a different type of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1. You could really start reading in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus, his cross, his resurrection makes us wise unto salvation. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 tells us. Makes us wise unto salvation. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 1. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. We can be saved from our folliness. We can be saved from being a fool by accepting the wisdom of the gospel. We come to Jesus for salvation. Point number three, Jesus came and is coming. And it will either be devastation or salvation for these two groups of people. He's coming. He's coming with devastation and he's coming with salvation. Number one, we will find ourselves under his judgment if we continue in our folly. If you live as though God doesn't exist, you will find out that he does in the worst ways possible. Where terror never was, terror will soon come. If we fear him now, so we don't fear him later. Remember when we were talking, and you may not remember back this far, but when we were in the Minor Prophets, there were several Minor Prophets, Hosea and Joel come to mind, where there's pictures of God roaring like a lion, right? And remember we talked about how in some of those passages, it's a good thing and a positive thing for the believer. Why? Because the believer is pictured as coming behind that lion and answering the call of the roar to be with him. But then there's other passages in the Minor Prophets that talk about God roaring like a lion. And it's the type of feelings we would have if we saw a lion coming to us roaring, we would be fearful, right? We'd be fearful because that lion's about to eat me, right? He's about to devastate me. He's about to kill me. Two different pictures. It's the same lion roaring, but it's a good roar when we stand behind the lion and he's our lion and he is fighting for us versus being on the other side where he is charging against us. Right? There's terror here. Why? Because Jesus is returning. And there wasn't terror there before. I think this could be an allusion to um, what happens in 2 Kings 19. That's where Hezekiah and, and the people of God are, are held up and Sennacherib and the Assyrian army are outside. And they are boasting about how the God of Israel will not save you and we are about to come in and devastate you. And they are very pompous and proud about what they've already accomplished. And then God tells Hezekiah, that's not happening. Right? Like that's not happening. He's not coming in here. And in the night, these bodies are spread out everywhere as this army is defeated by God without Israel even having to come out and fight. I mean, that's kind of the picture you get, right, in Psalm chapter 53. This idea of, of God's judgment and the terror where there was no terror. Because I can tell you, Sennacherib and his army would have been standing out there with no terror. And then all of a sudden, when God starts to show up, terror sets in. Right? And then God scattered the bones of him who encamped against God's people. Scattered them. He's going to ultimately end the foolish 
plans, scatter their bones, put us to open shame, and reject those in his victory. That's what he communicates here. The believer can be encouraged because God is coming against the unbeliever and will end those plans, scatter their bones, put them to open shame, and reject them in his victory. In the end, God's wisdom will win out. Listen to what uh, Psalm 52 says. You get this picture of the, the wicked and the evil at the beginning of the chapter. And then look what it says in verse 5. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. What's that saying? It's saying in the end, we're going to realize we were right all along, right? We're going to see all of our hope come to fruition. We're going to see that everything that we endured, the ridicule, the lack of satisfaction and fulfillment here on this earth that the wicked seems to get in his own prosperity. At the very end, we're going to look and see we were right. We were right. Jesus was coming back, right? We were right. He is going to save us. He is the lion that's roaring and we're behind him and he's not coming for us, right? We will be the ones laughing in the end because we will realize we were always right. Number two and three, we'll go quickly. We can find refuge in God now by calling upon him every day. We call upon him every day. Youth, you can go to God in his word. You can pray every day. Why? He's always with us to hold us firm and steady. Remember what Psalm 139 verses five and 10 talk about. He holds our hand. He holds us firm. He remains with us at all times. Number three, we can find hope in God now by longing for what is to come. What we long for as followers of Jesus is not found in this world, but in the one to come. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I kind of transformed that a little bit into saying this. If as a Christian we are looking for ultimate satisfaction in this life only, we are of all people most to be disappointed. We're going to be disappointed if we come to Christ expecting to find all this great fulfillment in this life because that's not what's promised to us. Our inheritance is being held for us and it's coming down the road. So youth, hear me on this. Don't think, don't misunderstand what we've been promising you as as your spiritual leaders for your life, your parents, your pastors, your Sunday school teachers, your Bible teachers. What we are promising you is if you come to Christ, the life to come is indescribable. The life that you know here, it's going to be challenging and difficult. But here's the thing. You're going to experience God in a more full way because you are going to run to him and find refuge in him. And that's, that's the cool thing. As the, as, the, as the unbeliever attacks the believer, it just means we experience our God in, in better ways. We get to experience him as our refuge, right? But if we think that we're going to find satisfaction here, then we're going to be disappointed. We are going to walk away from the faith. No, our satisfaction is to come. The Christian ought to know best this world is broken, but also ought to know best where to look for the coming resolution. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Old Testament, Jesus hadn't come at all yet. In the New Testament, we look back and we read this verse and we say, yes and yes. Yes, he has come. Yes, salvation has come for Israel. It did come out of Zion and it's coming again. 
Full salvation is coming when Jesus returns for his people. Application for us. Am I living like I not only believe God exists, but also that I want him to? Think about your life. Does your life reflect that you believe that he exists, but does it also reflect that you want him to? meaning that you're fully submitted to him. Not that you show up to church some, and so that, that communicates to other people that, well, obviously I'm not an atheist because I go to church on a Sunday. Does your life communicate that you absolutely want him to exist too because you find joy and pleasure in him now because of the comfort and the refuge that he provides? Don't be a fool. He exists. He's coming. We can take comfort and hope in that today. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that in spite of our sin and in spite of our lack of goodness, you sent Jesus to be our Savior, that we can be rescued from our sinful foolishness. God, help us even as we've been rescued already, as we're tempted to go back to a state of living like you don't exist. God, protect us from that. Help us to see what a miscalculation that would be, that while the wicked may prosper now, they certainly won't prosper in the end. God, I pray that you'd protect our youth, our youth who are so tempted today to to live like the world. Their sinful desires are being incited constantly through culture and social media. They are being being challenged and, and being tempted to be drawn to these things. God, help them to say no to it. Help them to say no to the things that are contrary to your word and to your will. Help them to realize that they don't need that satisfaction now because it's coming. Protect them from falling away. God, help us to see that we need you on a daily basis, that we need to be calling out to you, not eating our bread and living our life as though you don't matter. God, help us to see that you're coming. Help us to look back into your word and see the evidence that you've already come so many times and help it to give us further assurance that you are coming, that you came and you created. You came and you judged sin already with the flood. You sent Jesus to come to pay for our sin. You judged sin again on the cross. You raised him to life three days later to show that that sacrifice has been accepted. God, help us to believe that you are coming again so that we'll live like it. As 1 John says, that we'll purify ourselves in anticipation of that coming. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.